You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles and your device or whatever you're using and go to the book of Hebrews and beginning in chapter 6, verse 13. Hebrews 6, 13 is, is where it will be. And really the writer of Hebrews, he wants us, as we've seen pretty much every week in, in this book, and we'll see this every week to the very end, is that he wants us to keep looking to Jesus. And our temptations, look to Christ. And our fear, to look to Jesus. And our doubts, I mean, really whatever scenario you are in in your life, Jesus is always relevant. And he's exactly where we must look. Because we'll be tempted to look somewhere else thinking that will be more helpful. But what we've seen already in the book of Hebrews is that all the way to chapter one, Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than the high priest of Judaism. That he is the founder of our salvation. That he is our kind and large-hearted savior. And that he's always there for us to offer us grace and mercy in time of need. And today is the same thing that our safety and our stability in life, we have an anchor in Christ. And as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of the word of God. And we'll begin in verse 13 of chapter six. And the spirit says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now by your great power and by your great mercy, would you help us to hear what it is you have for us from your word? Would you help us to patiently wait on your promises? Would you help us to find that anchor, to put our faith in that anchor? So help us now, King Jesus, and it's by your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think I may be in the minority here, but... I love infomercials. I love the late night infomercials. I love the highlight clips of infomercials, people not able to stack Tupperware and all that kind of stuff. I love it. And the more idiotic they are, I love them. Because here's why. It's all fake information. It's stuff you don't really need or stuff you don't need to know. There's the classic, you've all seen it, the Ginzu knives cutting through a shoe. If you, if you have one, no offense, 
Um, they cut, cut, cut through, you know, Coke cans like butter. And then the classic, you know, there's the bed and there's a glass of wine in the corner and there's a lady jumping up and down on the bed. I'd like to meet the person who said, okay, yeah, I'm gonna buy that bed now. Like what about that convinced you that that scenario goes, oh yeah, I always jump on my bed with a glass of wine. That, that's what, this would remedy the problems I have. Because the problem is these are not real life scenarios so they don't convince us. They don't apply. If they showed a bed that kept your kids from climbing into it, we would buy that one. <laughs> These products, and here's why, they, they try to scratch where we itch, but they try to trick you and me. They try to make you think you're itching somewhere that you're not, and then they provide the scratch. They try to present this alternate reality. And I think a lot of times, we approach the promises of God as though they're not really scratching where we itch. They don't really meet us. We feel like they don't really meet us where we are. But we must see from God's word that the promises of God are not an alternate reality. They are reality. That the promises of God, the power of God, and the goodness of God himself meets us right where we are. And a tragic thing in the Bible Belt is that many of us treat God's word and his promises like that fancy Tupperware we don't need. It's cool but it's unconvincing. We think we can get by with what we've got. That H-E-B lunch meat Tupperware I got, I can just keep using that. We think we can just get by with what we have rather than viewing God's word and his promises as our daily bread, something we desperately need. And this is why last week's sermon at the end of Hebrews 6 in that first section talked about getting out of our sluggish spiritual walks, having a vibrant, passionate walk with Christ and imitating those who do. So look at verse 12 of chapter six. He says, so that you may not be sluggish. So here's how, how to get out of that. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And what does he go to? So who should we imitate? What example do we see in scripture? Abraham, verse 13. What does he say? When God made a promise from verse 12 to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you, multiply you. Verse 15, thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. That takes us back to verse 12. Through patience and faith, inherit the promises. We're learning we need to patiently wait for his promises. And he gives us Abraham the example to imitate. Abraham, God promised him over and over and over again in Genesis that he was gonna bless him, that he was gonna give him a giant number of descendants, and he would give him land, and that he, but through him, he would be a blessing to the whole world. And Abram waited, and he walked, not just metaphorically, he walked miles, logged miles, he fought battles. He pled with God for cities to not be destroyed. He rescued his family members from these kings who captured them. He believed God and he struggled. He lied. He cheated. But through it all, he did believe God. That's why Genesis 15 says, and he believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. He wasn't considered righteous because of how he performed. He messed up a lot, but he did believe God. And God called him righteous. Grace overflowed to Abraham. 
And really this big promise, the big one that through you, you're, there's gonna, I'm going to give you a son. You know, the Bible says, all right, at this point, I mean, his wife kind of laughed. We're going to have a kid. Are you crazy? And God says, Sarah, why did you laugh? She's like, I didn't laugh. And God says, you did. I heard you. And Paul says about Abram's body, when he was as good as dead. That's a great compliment for your body. As good as dead. And God told him, you're going to have a son. You know how long it took from that promise, you're going to have a son, to the birth of Isaac, how long that took? 25 years. Two and a half decades. Imagine waiting 25 years for the birth of your child, for that promise to be realized. We got to try to enter into that emotional and mental mindset of Abraham. I know with, with Oliver, we, we waited well over a year. And this was at a time at our church, much like now, where there are pregnancies everywhere. And at one point, it was like everyone on the church staff, either their wife or that staff member, was pregnant, except for Carolyn. <laughs> and there we sat going, man, I don't, what's happening? With Ivy, it was like, man, Natalie got pregnant so fast, and now are we, are we not going to have any more? And we started thinking, I guess, and we're done. And then the Lord provided. So imagine waiting 25 years. I know some of us here, we've waited longer than a year and have cried many tears and are still waiting. So we need to enter into what Abram and Sarah would be thinking and going through, how, how trying it could be and how easy it would be to doubt God's promise. How tempting it would be to get angry at God, to be frustrated with God, to be tempted towards impatience. But the Bible says he patiently waited on God. He trusted him. And sometimes we get really impatient towards God. But I want to just pause here for a second because we can read something like this and go, yeah, I got to just keep patiently waiting on God for that promotion that I know I'm going to get. That may not happen. Sometimes we think, okay, I need to be patient with God for him to provide something. And that's true. But if God has not specifically promised something to you, it may not happen. So don't think, well, I'm, you know, I'm waiting on that sweet job. I mean, I know God's going to deliver. That's prosperity, gospel, satanic garbage. God may never give you that. And that's really popular in our area to think, well, I'm just going to wait on God and his promises. I'm, I'm a, you know, he promised me this. No, your promises from God are all right here. Anything else outside of this, I would not bank on. God's not out to fulfill our wish dreams. He is going to answer his promises. So we, we, this does not apply to, okay, that, that new car. I'm just going to wait for God to help me win the lottery. Not going to happen. But what this does mean is just now, we need to step back for a second. And don't miss this. And marvel that the God of the universe has made promises to you. That the almighty, eternal, majestic God, the only one in the universe, has made specific and particular and special promises to you, and he swears I'll deliver. God swears that he will fulfill his promises to you. This is amazing. That, beloved, you have a storehouse of promises from God to you. And sometimes we want to think of other things. We'd like to have this new insight or this new revelation or some new kernel of God's word that we didn't know before. But there are promises that are 
good for your soul to remember every single day. Things we've already seen in Hebrews that you can, you are promised. If you draw near to the throne of grace, you will receive mercy and help in time of need. It's a promise to you. A promise that we are saved by grace through faith. I promise that we are made new creations in Christ and the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. I promise that if you believe in Christ, your sins are forgiven. I promise that the Holy Spirit is now given to you to help you follow Jesus. I promise that all things eventually will work together for good. I promise that nothing shall ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I promise that when you die, you die to the Lord. And I promise that you will rise again. And I promise that you will live on the new earth in your resurrected body. When judgment day comes, you will have nothing to fear, but you will hear, well done. Here is your rewards. Here is your inheritance. And you will reign and you will live on the new earth forever with all of God's resurrected children from every, from every time and from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. These are your promises. And they are not irrelevant to your daily life. We must learn to patiently wait on God because some of these promises are realized. You are forgiven, but you must trust that I really am forgiven. And you must wait for your inheritance to come. Patiently wait, not sell out for the cheap thrills of this earth, but waiting for the eternal thrills to come. We have a real problem because we don't know how to wait anymore. I'm waiting for the doctor's office to change the waiting room to the cell phone room. We just don't wait anymore. You wait in line, try this week at the grocery store, try to wait in line without taking your phone out. I'd be amazed if you could do it. Our, our technology has disconnected us from waiting. I mean, I get irritated with Netflix on my TV. It's a smart TV, you push the Netflix button on the remote, and Netflix pops up, it takes like a couple seconds for the remote to respond. I'm like, come on, what's happening? <laughs> we should get a new TV, I guess. I mean, this thing, two seconds, good grief. Chick-fil-A, drive-through, sl slow, mm, slow, yes. <laughs> slow, cell signal, I mean, on and on. And here, here, here's the problem. We are enslaved to the instant. We are enslaved to the instant. And this is, here's why this is a problem. We cannot speed up God's ways. We want instant answers to prayer. We pray once, twice, a week. Like, oh, I guess God's not going to do it. It might be 25 years till God answers that prayer. We want instant open doors. We want instant closed doors. But we must wait. So where are you waiting on God? And are you waiting patiently? And Noda, you must know, he isn't late. God has never been late a day in eternity. To now, to the future, to his return, to your resurrection, he will never be late. And listen, beloved, this patient waiting, this isn't polite manners towards the Most High. I'm gonna be patient, I don't wanna pester God, let's not pester him, let's not, you know. no, this is about trusting him that I believe that God is right, that God is good, that God is true, and that God will do what he says. I can trust him. 
Because look at what Hebrews says about God's promises in verses 16 through 18. They are unstoppable. They are convincing, true, and encouraging. Look at verse 16. For people swear, so these promises, they swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, a, a final, an oath is final for confirmation. So he's showing us how the legal system back then, just much like ours today, when there was a promise, a contract, an oath was made, confirmation is made. And when someone goes to court today and they're supposed to tell the whole truth and nothing but the whole truth, what do they say? So help me God. And what do they do? They put their hand on a Bible. They're swearing by something greater than themselves that I will fulfill the truth. I will say, I will do promises right here. I'm promising to tell the truth. When a contract needs collateral, the house, land, because they want something greater than your word, sadly, to make sure this gets fulfilled. That's why the Bible says right here in verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves. But what about God? How is God making this promise? Well, if you look back in verse 13, he had no one greater by whom to swear, so he swore by himself. God made this promise himself, guaranteed it with his godness. There's no one greater for him to swear by. And God could have said, I will bless you. But he says, I will, verse 14, surely I will bless you. That's the oath part. Surely I will do this. No doubt. Indeed, I will bless you, Abram. Bank on it. In a way, God is putting himself under oath in his promises. And he says, I will bless you. I will multiply you. God is right here saying, we could even say, God is saying, I swear to God, I will fulfill my promises to you. Every promise we have in God's word, we hear the same thing. God is saying, I swear to myself, I will fulfill this. I will do this for you. How trustable is this? This is why we should never doubt God's word. His promises are unstoppable. We know they're unstoppable. Why? Because there's no one greater than God. There, there is no one in the universe who is greater than God. There is no outside force greater than God. No one can usurp him. Nothing can alter his promises. There is not a force in the universe that could dismantle or detour God's promises for you and for me. His ways are unthwartable. There is nothing that happens that God didn't know about. It's like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. If, that, if I knew that was going to happen, then I wouldn't have made that promise to you. Because that's how our promises fall apart. Outside forces make our promises and our plans fall apart. Plans get delayed. Weather. Traffic. A kid not being able to find their shoe. A tummy ache. I mean, there are a million things that can happen that derail our promises. I know I promised I'd be there, but, you know, happen. I mean, I promised I'd make it home in time, but man, there was a wreck. There's all kinds of things that dismantle our ways, but not God's. You must look at his as unstoppable. And God did this to convince you. Look at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly, to the heirs of the promise. You know who the heirs of the promise are? If you're a Christian, that's you. It's me. We are the heirs of the promise. So when God desired to show more convincingly to you, 
the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God wants to show you how unchangeable he is and the unchangeable character of his purpose. I mean, how many people do you know that are unstoppable, unchangeable, other than a toddler? Like a boulder rolling downhill. They're hard to stop. But in real life, there's no one that's unstoppable, unchangeable, and and who is for your joy and for your good. These two attributes of God, unstoppable, unchangeable, ultimate cosmic powers, this would be the quintessential tyrant or the quintessential villain in a comic movie. They're always out for evil. But the one who's unstoppable, unchangeable, he's for your good. He is God. He's for, your, he's for his glory and for your good. And I love this next part about God that he wants to convince us with and to comfort us with. The last part of verse 17. I'm sorry, the middle of verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things, here it is, in which it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. We often talk about how there's nothing God can't do. There's nothing God can't do. That's not totally true. There is one thing God cannot do, and he cannot go against his character. He cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And you have to know the word impossible. It's not that he won't lie, because it's not nice. Or it's, and it's not that he's choosing not to lie, you know, because he's God. It's that he cannot lie. It is not in God's capacity to lie to you and me. And Satan wants you to think that God lies to you all the time. That was the direct temptation in the Garden of Eden, that that God is lying to Adam and Eve. No, you won't die. God's lying to you. God's holding out on you. This is, this is the root of every lie that we believe, that God's holding out on us. There must be something better. God's short-arming us. No, you won't die. Eat it. God knows that you'll be like him. That's why God doesn't want you to do that. Satan wants you to think that all of these promises of God are really lies to you. Oh, the Bible says he'll forgive you, but not for this sin. Now, the Bible says we should forgive each other, but forgiving your spouse, that won't make things better. They'll take advantage of you. Don't do that. The Bible says we should love others, but look at how mean they are to you. The Bible says, oh, love your enemies? Satan wants to tempt you. That's not, re- that's not realistic. Satan wants you to think God lies to you. But do you believe that it's impossible for God to lie? that he doesn't lie to you, that John 3, 16 is not a lie, that when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father but by me, that that is not a lie, that Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is not a lie, that Romans 8, 28 is not a lie, and that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God did raise Jesus from the dead, we shall be saved is not a lie. All of God's word is true. 
and all precious promises, no lies, all truth, relevant for your life. And he's unstoppable. He's unchanging. He's always truthful. And he's encouraging to us. Look at verse 18. So it's impossible for God to lie. And here's what we do. And we who have fled for refuge, what do we get with this God who is unchanging, who's unstoppable, who's our refuge? We might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. To hold fast to the hope that when temptation comes, when doubts come, that we have, since we have run to God for refuge, there is a strong encouragement, a fortifying rebar in our spines to hold fast to this hope. What is the hope? The way we use the word hope in our culture is not the same way the Bible uses hope. We use hope as flimsy uh, expectations, kind of these wish dreams. Like, I hope James Harden wins MVP. It's probably going to happen. It may not happen. That's, that's worldly. I, I, that's how we use hope. I hope it happens. But the Christian hope, this is a sure thing. It's unchangeable. It's unswerving. It's convincing. So what is your hope? The biblical gospel hope is that God stoops down to us and graciously promises to save us, not by our works, but by the works of Christ and by his blood shed for us. And Jesus, the son of God, dying in our place for our sins and rising again from the dead, conquering death, and we find refuge in him. That there is no safe place in this universe except within Christ. And I love that it says in verse 19, verse 18, we who have fled for refuge. Most of in this room have no idea what it means to flee for refuge. These Christians did. There's a book out right now called We Are Infidels. And it's about Christians in the Middle East who are running from ISIS. They know the meaning of this verse. But this is true of us. What do you call someone who's fled for refuge? A refugee. We are spiritual refugees. This whole world, the ways of Satan, sins attack, the demonic powers, temptations, spiritual warfare, this whole planet is a spiritual Syria under conflict by the satanic powers. And the gospel's invitation is to come for asylum in Christ, to find refuge in Christ. We are refugees. When you see these refugees on the news, read their stories, their children, widows, men who've lost their families, no clothes, nothing they own, homes destroyed, families ripped apart. Don't look away from them. They are you. They are us. Hebrews would tell us later, here we have no lasting city. We are aliens. We are foreigners. This is not our home. We are exiles. We are refugees. And if you despise refugees, you are disconnecting from your own story. If you despise refugees, you are disconnecting from your own story. And as refugees ourselves, we should have a tender spot in our heart for refugees, not a cynical one. Not even an American one. 
but a Christian one. Because this, as refugees, what do we get? What do we know that God gives us as refugees? Strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So this is not soggy spirituality anymore. This is a strong encouragement to hold fast and to seize it and to run with it, to live our hope that's set before us. So this means not the hope that's right here, not the hope that we're just living in, not the hope of our society, not the hope of our culture, not the hope of our paychecks, but the hope that's set before us. And what is that hope that's set before us? It's an anchor. We have an anchor, one that's unstoppable, convincing, true, and encouraging. Where is this anchor? Look at verse 19. So we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. An anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. You have a sure and steadfast anchor for your life. This is such a beautiful picture. I love the one I have anchor. It's not a shield. When an anchor is dropped on the boat, it gives stability. When life hits us with strong winds, temptations, when thunderstorms roll in, sickness and depression and anxiety, fear, when anxieties and tsunamis roll in of suffering and cancer and death, oh, we have an anchor. The anchor doesn't keep these things away but the anchor keeps us from being taken away. We will rock, we will feel the swell, but we will not be overturned because we have an anchor for the soul. We're safe with Christ. And with that anchor, we don't go backwards. With that anchor dropped, we don't drift away. We don't get tossed. And this is the anchor for your soul. No more alternate anchors. We try so many things to anchor us in life. Try to find security in money. Try to find comfort in success. Try to stabilize our lives with what we can accomplish, with how we look, where we live, what we drive. We have one anchor. Do you rely on the anchor that God has given you? Or do you still try to anchor yourself? I mean, imagine if you went on a deep sea fishing trip with some friends and you're out there and a storm rolls in and you're not gonna make it back to shore. There's no way you're gonna make it back. And the captain says, all right, pull, pull the fishing poles in. We got a storm. I'm gonna anchor the boat. You guys grab a hold, we'll be okay. And you all sit down, you put your life jackets on and you look over at the captain and like, there's no anchor dropped. And you, all you see are his feet dangling from inside the boat. And you go and look and he's got his arm down. He's trying to reach the bottom of the ocean. You're like, what are you doing? So I'm going to anchor us. I can reach down. I can grab it. If I can just get to the bottom, I can anchor us and we'll be fine. You would say, well, we're going to die. <laughs> this guy's a fool. But yet how many of us are still trying to anchor ourselves? Suffering hits. Temptations hit, and we still try to just dig our own heels in and not look to a cross that was anchored at Calvary and not look to an empty tomb and not look to a throne 
How often are we trying to anchor ourselves, pretending we can handle it all, that we can touch bottom? We cannot. We aren't strong enough. And this anchor, our, our hope, look at where it's gone. A hope that enters into the inner place. So the anchor and our hope are the same thing. The inner place behind the curtain, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Our hope, our anchor, him. He went to the inner place behind that thick curtain in the temple, reminding us that now he's ascended into heaven and the holy of holies in the presence of God, that Jesus is our anchor. Jesus is our savior, that he is our redeemer, that he is our stabilizing savior in our life. He's our hope now, our hope for eternity, and that we are secure with him. And what I love about this anchor is this anchor is unlike any other anchor. Every other anchor on the planet goes down. Which direction does this anchor go? Up. We have an anchor not grounding us to the earth, but grounding us in heaven. Your life is anchored in heaven. Secure, stable, and steadfast. Because this anchor went to the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This earth is unstable. We don't need to be anchored to this earth. We need to be anchored to heaven. As Paul says, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This earth will be burned up and made new, but our anchor is sitting in the heavenly places, Jesus himself. So when temptations come, when struggles swell, when difficulties, doubts, suffering, and your soul is tossed around, you remember where your refuge is, that you are anchored in heaven with Christ himself. And a lot of us, we haven't really gone through anything where we would feel this anger. This doesn't resonate. Give, give it time. Give it a little bit of time and you'll feel, you'll be grasping for that chain. So prepare yourself now. Prepare yourself now for the future that you will know where the anchor is on the boat, where you can see it going into the heaven, where you can grab that chain and you can pray and feel your way and see your anchor there while you're getting your chemo treatment. Pray, hold on to that chain, see your anchor as you're sitting in another counseling room for a marriage that seems to be on the brink of not turning around. Grab that chain, feel that anchor as you're on your knees praying for the salvation of your wayward child again. Christ anchors us and he's our forerunner on our behalf, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This is incredible. When Jesus died and when he rose again, forgiving us of our sins and he went back to the Father, he did it. Right here, the Bible says, on your behalf. What does that mean? He did it on our behalf. It means he's saving you a spot. That he's gone ahead of us opened the doors for us. He's blazed the trail. He's made it possible for us to get to God and that he's the only way. And that he did it on your behalf. That he's sitting in the heavens, he's ruling over the universe on your behalf. In your place. He died in our place. He rose in our place. He reigns in our place. 
Is Jesus your hope? Or is some other alternate hope you've been relying on? Is he your anchor? If not, what is your anchor? What have you tried to ground your life in? What is the hope of your life? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and you'll be saved from your sins and you'll find a sweet anchor for your soul. And Christians, let's destroy all of these alternate anchors. No more alternate realities. No more impatience towards his promises. We have a sure anchor. And he is far more trustworthy, dependable, and more relevant than some lame late night infomercial. Let's trust him. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.